Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that by your Spirit, you might speak to us through your word, of your living word. In Jesus' name, amen. Am I slightly less boomy now? Wonderful. Well, I really enjoy watching history programs on TV, particularly anything presented by Lucy Worsley. Now, I wonder, are we allowed to claim her as being a local, seeing as she works at Hampton Court Palace as chief curator? Okay, she's a local, wonderful. Well, recently, Lucy Worsley presented two series entitled British History's Biggest Fibs and American History's Biggest Fibs. And in these programs, she looked at the way that history has been presented in these two English-speaking countries. Her underlying thesis was that the historical tales which we, we grow up telling ourselves about our nation inform the image that we have of ourselves, of our past and our future. And she showed some fascinating contemporary news clips in which American presidents have referred back to the founding fathers, the American War of Independence, to the Civil War, and they tapped into the patriotism, the pride, and the longings of their audience. It was absolutely fascinating. And then there is Who Do You Think You Are? The archetypal history program. For those of you who are unfamiliar with this show, this draws on that popular hobby of family genealogy. And celebrities are taken on a, a personal journey of discovery as they investigate their family history and explore the trials and successes and tribulations and failures of previous generations. It's quite often an emotional journey as they discover things about their relatives or recognize patterns of behavior running throughout their family tree. In the final few minutes of each program, the celebrity reflects on how they've been shaped by the discoveries they've made. And often they say things like, I didn't expect to get upset. They always say that. I didn't expect to get upset, but finding out about the lives of these people and the impact they've had on my family has been an emotional journey. I hope they'd be proud of me. I think one reason I enjoy watching these types of history programs is because of what they teach us about ourselves, about people and situations which have shaped the way we view our world. And there's science which backs this up. I was listening to a program on Radio 4 last week where they were interviewing a scientist who's been researching the role that story plays in our lives. And he made this startling claim. We have evolved to be storytelling machines. We live a storied existence. We make sense of our world through story and narrative. It's to this storied existence, this need to, to make sense of the world through story and narrative, to which Paul appeals in this passage in 1 Corinthians. He's about to, to launch into a wonderful and quite detailed argument about the Christian hope in death. And that's an argument which we're going to be engaging with in our sermon series over the next few weeks. But he doesn't start with his assertions on this topic by kind of appealing to his own persuasiveness or to, to grand philosophical or abstract ideas. No. no, he appeals to a story, a particular story, a story which is rooted in a particular place, a particular life and a particular set of events. A story which is familiar to the Corinthians. In verse 1 we read, Now I should remind you, brothers and sisters, of the good news I proclaim to you, which you in turn received, in which also you stand, through which you are being saved. 
This story was once unfamiliar to the Corinthians, such that they, they first heard it when Paul came as news. But now it's the story in which they stand. This story isn't somehow distant from the Corinthians. It's the very fundamental, foundational story which has come to define them, to shape them, to give meaning and perspective to their very existence. So it's to this story that Paul returns again and again. This is particularly important in the context of the city of Corinth. Corinth was an enormous metropolis located in a strategic position on the Mediterranean at the heart of the Roman Empire. And being a port city, Corinth was a melting pot for different cultures and included many freed slaves who were keen to make their name for themselves. Now they were free men living in an anonymous city. Power and prestige were on offer through skilled engagement in the Greek disciplines of rhetoric and philosophical debate. Enormous wealth and honour were possible if you were an attractive, charismatic orator skilled in presenting clever arguments. In his book of Corinthians, in his letter, Paul is keen to remind them that he did not buy into this approach during his time staying in the city. Instead, earlier in the letter, he writes this, When I came to you, brothers and sisters, I did not come proclaiming the mystery of God to you in lofty words or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and in much trembling. My speech and my proclamation were not with plausible words of wisdom, but with a demonstration of the spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on the power of God. Paul didn't come to manipulate the Corinthians. Instead, he came to share with them the seemingly foolish story of a man who died a criminal's ignominious death, and to invite them to experience the reality of his risen life. He came to them with a story and an invitation to participate in this story as it was their own. What are the stories upon which we base our lives? What are the narratives which help us to make sense of the world? How do these narratives shape us? As a bit of an aside, it's probably worth me mentioning um, one of the books which is on the table at the back. As many of you know, we try to put out some book recommendations which you can peruse and buy. And one of the new recommendations is a book called You Are What You Love by James K.A. Smith. This book asks us to reflect on the influences on our lives, on the things that we love. And it suggests that our life choices direct our love, and our love in turn directs our lives. And he writes this about how worship shapes us as those who love God, and in turn, how that then shapes our lives. He writes this. Christian worship paints a picture of the beauty of the Lord in a way which captures our imagination. Christian worship needs to meet us as aesthetic creatures who are, who are moved more than we're convinced. Our imaginations are aesthetic organs. Our hearts are like stringed instruments that are plucked by story, poetry, metaphor, and image. We tap our existential feet to the rhythm of an imaginative drum. Antoine de Saint-Exupéry captures this well. If you want to build a ship, don't drum up people to collect wood, don't assign them tasks and work, but rather teach them to long for the endless immensity of the sea. 
This is what Paul is doing here in this section of his letter to the Corinthians. He is calling the Christians of Corinth back to their heart story, to the story which captivated them when they heard it, to the story in which they participate and play their part. However, this doesn't seem to be the most elaborate rendition of this story. Instead, Paul is at pains to emphasize that this is not a story he's made up. He's here merely repeating the facts rather than adding to them. Several times he uses this word received. This story of death and the resurrection of Jesus is one which has been received from the original eyewitnesses and handed on personally. It's not one which has been made up or embellished. In verse 3 he says, For I handed on to you as of first importance what I in turn had received. Now, we can date this letter to the early 50s AD. So that constitutes a really early record of an established tradition within only 20 years of the events that it describes. In verse 6, he emphasizes this very point by highlighting that some of those who've encountered the risen Jesus can be questioned directly. He says, most of whom are still alive, although some have died. These events are not a a fairy tale or a myth. They're an account of an event or a series of events that happen to real flesh and blood living people within living memory. So what were these events? Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Then he appeared to Cephas. That's to Peter, in case you're wondering. And then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared also to me. Jesus' death was a real death. It was not a sense of semi-consciousness or a faint. The Romans knew what they were doing when they executed rebels. On the cross, Jesus died. His life came to an end. He took his last breath and he died. The reality of this is apparent with this mention here of burial. All four of the Gospels talk about Jesus' burial in the tomb. That's because it's central to the significance of the story that Jesus really did die. The finality of life, the end of hope, the conclusion of a story. Death is the final enemy the one over which humans have ultimately no power. Even with all the technology developed over the millennia, it's still only possible for humans to delay death and not to defeat it. And the claim that Paul wants to make is that that's what lies at the heart of this story. The defeat of death is exactly what the resurrection of Jesus has achieved. One has gone through death, He has been laid in the tomb for three days. He has been raised from the dead, and he now lives with death behind him. The resurrection of Jesus turns upside down all that we know about the world. Now, the first Christians weren't naive about the reality of death. It was a world in which life was brutal and often short, death was feared, and the pain that it brought. The Christian claim is that death does not have the final word. That in the reality of the resurrection of Jesus, a decisive victory has been won over death, and God's power over death has been made known. 
And Paul is keen that the full significance of this story is appreciated by the Corinthians. And he'll go on to elaborate that over the coming verses of chapter 15. And we'll go on to look at that a bit more in detail over coming weeks. But before he gets on to those implications, he returns once more to the personal relevance of this story. This story is not simply a bland statement of facts to be memorized or unthinkingly spouted as a kind of magic formula. This is a story which demands a response. The resurrection of Jesus changes everything. The resurrection of Jesus is at the heart of the Christian faith. The whole Jesus story only makes sense because of the apparent end of that story, something so totally unexpected, so totally unprecedented occurs that those who are involved in that story have to reevaluate everything, everything they've ever thought, everything they've ever known. Paul here recounts his own experience of the risen Jesus, his own unworthiness as a violent persecutor of Christians, to be one who can tell of his encounter with Jesus after his resurrection. We too are challenged to consider our own response to the resurrection of Jesus. What are we to make of one who's died and is raised from the tomb? Theologian Robert Jensen says that we shouldn't approach this story with our our own kind of preconceived ideas of what God is like, but rather that this story itself fundamentally redefines who God is. God, says Robert Jensen, God is whoever raised Jesus from the grave. It is this story who defines who God is and describes what and who he is. God is whoever raised Jesus from the grave. This story of death and resurrection is the story which we are invited to allow to underpin our own lives today. We're invited to to live our lives knowing that on the cross, Jesus takes the worst that death can bring. He bears the shame, the indignity, the lies of betrayal, the injustice of accusation. And in his resurrection, he defeats them. The power of death is broken and life wins. Over coming weeks, we'll look at what that specifically means for our hope in death. But today, we're invited afresh to reflect on the shape that this story gives to our lives. What might it mean for us to live as those for whom Jesus' death and resurrection brings hope and perspective? What might it mean to live lives of possibility and potential because the finality of death has been conquered? How might our lives be fundamentally shaped and reshaped by seeing ourselves as participants in this ongoing story? We are storied people. We make sense of ourselves through story and narrative. Let us be those who tell and retell the story of Jesus' death and resurrection to one another, who share this news with others, and who live our lives in the middle of this great and wonderful ongoing story. Amen.